Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Hey, good morning everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio and we are now in... Um, we are now for, in our first program of 2021 with myself, um, Chloe um, Zane. Um, so, yeah, good. good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Yeah, so um, I hope everyone um, who is listening had um, a good sort of break over over the, uh, over the kind of holiday period. And now we're getting into 2021. And of course, actually probably quite a lot has, um, kind of happened, um, since, um, since our last program. And in fact, a number of, um, political kind of developments have sort of happened, um, that we're going to be talking about on our program today. Um, but I guess before, um, we go on to that, I would like to acknowledge that Free CR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present, and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Okay, now I guess the first kind of story I kind of want to mention in terms of um, breaking news, and now this is a bit of a kind of old story, but I, I thought it would be a good sort of opportunity um, to sort of start the program and you know have a bit of a rant about it. Um, but on New Year's Day at the start, well, New Year's Eve in um, particular, um, Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, made a pretty amusing kind of announcement, I kind of felt. Basically, our national anthem is generally has a line that says, we are young and free. And, of course, everyone's probably been forced to sing that, unfortunately, at some point in their lives, um, at, um, especially if you've gone to um, in, at schools. But one of the um, one of the one of the things about this line is it essentially um, excludes Aboriginal people um, from from the from the anthem of Australia. So Scott Morrison has come to an amazing kind of solution, and basically that is saying changing the line to "We are one and free." And when I read this on the news, I thought it was quite amazing, actually, because when you consider the um, the um, deaths and custody of Aboriginal people, um, consider the hi- their history of colonialism and the effects of colonialism, uh, when you consider the all, all the terrible things that are currently going on in Australia, um, and you know the, the treatment of Aboriginal people in particular. This is apparently the thing that is supposed to make our government look like they actually care about the concerns of, um, of the Aboriginal community. And really what you could argue is that it's nearly nothing more than a tokenistic gesture. And I thought it was completely embarrassing that, you know, all the politicians were just celebrating, patting themselves on the back about 
about how progressive they are because they made this simple change to the na- national anthem. So, yeah, I thought that was really um, quite, I think it's quite outrageous, actually, especially when you consider there's been these massive kind of protests on the street, especially around Invasion Day, which is going to be coming uh, down soon, demanding um, justice for Aboriginal people. And, like, the best thing that our government can apparently do in response to all this is to change one line in um, the national anthem. And, of course, how can you say, I mean, the line is also wrong anyway, to say we are one and and free uh, as a nation is quite preposterous when you consider that at the hands of the um, government, they are refugees who are currently languishing in detention, um, which is something we're going to be going into a bit um, talking about because the refugee rights campaign has kind of blown up, um, has kind of, expanded and, and is gaining momentum at this stage around the refugees currently held for Park Hotel. But, yeah, I guess, yeah, does Zane and Chloe, do you have any kind of more comments to add on this score? Well, we're not young and free. We're polarised, class-divided, race-divided and under a bunch of coercive, excessive... You know, state institutions. So yeah, it's a tokenistic gesture and it's, it's rubbish as well. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I'm, I'm not really in favor of being forced to sing patriotic songs anyway. And I, I don't remember voting for this song to be the anthem, but, um, yeah, it is the anthem. It is a lie. The way we treat Aboriginal people and refugees, we are not fair. We are not free. Um, and we are not, you know, yeah. And I, actually, I was reading an alternative. I, there are lots of alternative, um, like, parodies of the anthem. I was wondering if I could just read one out um, by Alex Bainbridge. You can cut it out if it's inappropriate or anything, but I thought it was really good. Mm-hmm. And it goes, like, it goes like this. The anthem is a lie. The way Aboriginal people and refugees are treated. Australians all let us revolt. Uh, for we wish to be free. For all our toil, no wealth or spoils, just debts and poverty. Our land abounds with nature's gifts, destroyed without a care. In history's page, or, or Murdoch's page at every stage, resist and don't despair. Injustice reigns, but we can win, resist until it's fair. So maybe we can sing that or chant that. I mean, I think my my kind of view is I think that the only, um, I think Australia in itself as a nation is a colonial kind of state and really there cannot be any national anthem that is actually supportable um, unless Australia fundamentally changes as a nation, like starting from signing a treaty um, with Aboriginal people, um, start... Um, I, um, acknowledging the um, the wrongs and actually achieving sovereignty and justice for for Aboriginal um, people. I like. I don't think. Yeah. And there's, of course, there's also that debate around Australia becoming a republic um, and abandoning the monarchy. But I also don't think that that um, it really needs um, for Australia to, as a nation, to change. It first has to deal with how it treats um, our, our First Nations community. Okay, well, I might just go, we might move on to another news story, but I'll just kind of flip play a quick announcement.
Hi, my name's Travis from Larrakia Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is 1300 655 Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. 1300 655 06. 1-300-655-06. The Reading Writing Hotline. A 3CR supporter. All right. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And I was going to, um, we're just kind of discussing, having a bit of a discussion about how tokenistic and useless really this um, recent announcement about the change to the national anthem and now I guess I want to get into kind of the next kind of news story and um, one of the more important ones is the current um, situation of the uh, of uh, the refugee rights movement. And over uh, the December period, um, the campaign has um, um, dramatically kind of escalated. Um, in a, um, right now, the current situation is a lot of the focus um, for, um, for the refugee my rights movement in Melbourne in particular has been focused on the Medivac um, refugees who have who were previously held at the Marcher Hotel. And in fact, we've had a lot of discussion uh, about the protests and the things um, that have happened around there. And since then, in December, um, the refugees have now been moved to the Park Hotel in um, Carlton, and basically um, all the refugees are currently kind of detained here. So the focus of the refugee rights movement at this stage has been to organise regular kind of daily protests outside the Park Hotel. At this stage, the refugees don't know how long they're going to be held there. Um, in fact, it's not out of the realm of the possibility that they'll be moved to alternative place of detention at some point in the future. But I think some, I think it's been great that there has been daily protests organised regularly. And in fact, there has been regular mass mobilisations organised by um, different groups. And in fact, the next um, big refugee mobilisation at the Park Hotel is going to be this Saturday at 2pm at the State Library. And yeah, I mean, there's there's just been a lot. Um, I, I highly encourage it, or anyone who's kind of listening um, to get down to the Park Hotel, which is just on Swanson Street near Lincoln Square, and um, join the daily protests. In fact, they've been happening at 3pm every Saturday and Sunday with uh, a, a major mobilisation being organised at 2pm at the State Library. And then, of course, the, the week, um, weekday protests have been organised on 5pm and they usually take place outside the Park Hotel. Um, but I might pass it on to Chloe. Do you have any sort of anything kind of more to comment? Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Yeah, as you were saying, as, as most of you know, support is really growing to free the Medivac refugees who are held in detention by the Australian government onshore and offshore. And we, we know that Australia's detention policies are some of the harshest in the world. Detention here is mandatory for those without a visa. It is also indefinite. There's no independent reviews. Uh, and this just seems to be getting worse. Um, yesterday or the day before, I think you know, it was yesterday, uh, a building at Christmas Island uh, burned down. And, you know, these refugees are put in some really dangerous situations. 
there are daily protests in Melbourne um, on weekdays at 5 p.m. and weekends at 3 p.m. But it's really important that everybody joins the rally this Saturday, the 9th at 2 p.m. at the State Library. Uh, it's been initiated by the Refugee Action Collective, and that is to highlight the grave injustice of what's currently happening here in Melbourne. I'll just recap um, what is happening is instead of being released into the community um, a few weeks ago, the 60 medevac refugees uh, who are still suffering from serious health problems were transferred to the Park Hotel in Carlton from the Mantra Hotel in Preston. Um, and they were imprisoned there for over a year. Uh, and they were brought here onshore under the now repealed Medivac legislation. But most of the refugees haven't been treated for their illnesses. Um, and they are, these men, they're recognized by the government as refugees, yet they continue to be detained by the same government in um, Papua New Guinea or Nauru, and now here at the Park Hotel in Carlton and Maita in Broadmeadows. Seven refugees have already been released on legal grounds. So there's just no justification for dragging out this, this inhumane process any longer. The government has shown a complete lack of responsibility and compassion for the Medivac refugees and have just been treating them like criminals. Um, now also visits to refugees have been banned by the Australian Border Force saying it's because of COVID-19. Um, but, you know, the men are constantly surrounded by guards who come and go without uh, health checks. And, you know, they frequently wake them up at night for um, inspections. They ransack their rooms. So they're not really safe from COVID anyway. And yeah, just, yeah, some are attempting to commit suicide. So we just really need this nightmare to end. Um, you know, some of these men were very young when they escaped persecution and had to flee their homes. Uh, persecution or wars, uh, wars the Australian government have been complicit in. So please join the rally, uh, share it on your networks. It is a united rally supported by over 45 organizations with some great speakers. We want it to be a large demonstration to show our solidarity with the refugees and put as much pressure on the government to release them and end this nightmare. Uh, and we'll be marching up to, this, to the Park Hotel, um, which is next to Lincoln Square by 3 p.m. after um, being at the State Library at 2 p.m. Thanks. If you're a member of a trade union, uh, wear a union shirt or bring a union flag. I'll be bringing my CFMU flag along. I think it's really good to see this uh, upsurge in the in the movement to get these people released. And um, comrades from a campaign against racism and fascism, who a couple of years ago were uh, fighting against the various kind of neo-Nazi far-right groups that were that were kind of mobilising in Melbourne, those groups have gone away. So campaign against racism and fascism, I think quite correctly have turned their attention to the disgraceful treatment of refugees and asylum seekers by this country, which is the sort of, um, it's a big part of the racist kind of festering um, situation that actually gives oxygen to the far right. Uh, that alongside with the ongoing dispossession and um, killing of, of Aboriginal people by you know, police and, and while they're in custody, um, those sort of things really 
contribute to the environment that, that breeds racist um, ideology and, and organisations. So, yeah, it's really good to see. And it would be great if uh, if this campaign can, can further build momentum and can get those refugees released. That will build a footing to, to build further victories. So, yeah, strike while the iron's hot and get in there and support this. And it's also like um, one of the things is um, I think one of the things for all the activists who are kind of involved in the different groups have been organising different protests at the um, at the Park Hotel. It's part of trying to build um, a bit of momentum um, from being a bit inspired by the cam- um, campaign at Kangaroo Point Hotel in Brisbane. Um, so I think it is quite an exciting kind of development. We don't know how um, if the if it if the momentum's going to grow, but of course, with people being away on holidays, etc., we don't um, we don't know um, how it'll go. And in fact, the protests this Saturday that's being organised by Refugee Action Collective could be quite um, big. And there's going to be another um, rally on the 30th of um, January, organised by a Campaign Against Racism Fashion, and there will be a further mass mobilisation on February the 13th um, by Refugee Action Collective. So it'll be great if all our listeners can um, get down to all those um, protests and um, because I think, you know, and one of the also important things as well about mobilising is that the refugees who are being held at the um, post, um, I think it's the post hotel, isn't it? Yeah, it's the post, I think um, I keep some, I even forgotten the name of the hotel. Um, oh, the Park the Hotel. Park Hotel, Sorry. Park, the park yeah, hotel yeah. which was the, the, ver- the, they've changed their name recently from Bridges. They were the site of the quarantine, the, the, the outbreak, the main outbreak in, in Melbourne. So. Yeah, that triggered the second wave. Yeah. Yeah. So at the, at the Park Hotel, um, yeah, the refugees um, can actually see the protests from their windows. And in fact, it is, they have reported that it gives them inspiration, it expires them and keeps them going. So I think that's one of the important things about going to the pro, uh, about to the pro, attending the protests to be part of building um, the campaign to have the, put the pressure on the government to actually free all the refugees. And then the second one to actually, it actually get, serves as a practical measure of actually supporting the refugees who are currently being imprisoned in the Park Hotel. Okay, well, um, before I play a, a quick news announcement, I just want to kind of make a quick report on a news story that we still, there's still not much information known about it, but one of the detention centres has um, been essentially burnt, well, Parts of it have been burned down, um, not the entire centre. Um, anyway, I think this is a, a interesting kind of development because, especially if it was, if it if it has um, been linked, if it was caused by the people who are currently being imprisoned, because really the the, the, the conditions are completely repulsive um, at the Crystal Hotel. The fact that refugees have been imprisoned there uh, for so long is um, um, completely outrageous, and I think the refugee movement should um, unconditionally come behind any of the refugees who might have been um, um, of the detainees who are currently on um, Christmas Island stand in solidarity with them. And um, yeah, we shouldn't give in to any sort of right wing sort of um, media that tries to paint, um, uh, you know, paint, um, attack these refugees for um, for causing um, causing the fire. 
and I think, you know, it's probably, it's a good thing if the, if the, if the, if the, if the, if the detention centre um, ceases to exist. Yeah, Kenneth, and um, Chloe mentioned that um, the, the inmates there were playing reggae music as the place burned to the ground, which is a beautiful image, and I think those people are, it's just a tribute to people maintaining the rage and maintaining some humanity. It's it's just unthinkable how deeply horrendous it is the, the, the extent to which those people are being tortured by the Australian government and deprived of their liberty indefinitely. And yeah, I 100% agree. People need to back this and not get, you know, buy into weird moralistic arguments about whether it's fair for people to burn down concentration camps that they're being kept in. It's 100% a legitimate action. Do you have any comments you want to make? Uh, yeah, I was just reading the the media release and just, <clears throat> yeah, the, the lack of access to one of the compounds. Of, well, you know, the refugees, they're locked in their compounds for 22 hours a day. It's the same here for the Medivac refugees. They're not allowed to go out at all. Um, and, you know, they use handcuffs for, for transfers from detention centres. They're all uh, sick and they're getting sicker made by the fact that they are detained indefinitely. Um, yeah, and it's just, yeah, it's just a, a, a massive human rights issue. It needs to be addressed. And yeah, it is like Jacob was saying that the, the refugees are, are very empowered and um, yeah, their spirits are lifted um, seeing a constant presence of protesters outside their window. The, the, uh, Park Hotel, or I don't know who was responsible, that they actually tinted their windows so we couldn't see them, but they've actually peeled that tint back on some of the windows so we can see them waving, fortunately. Um, yeah, well, let's hope that this, this ends soon and then they, and they get their freedom. Um, yeah, that's it. Okay. Well, I might just go play a quick announcement and we might move on to another sort of major news story that is probably will have different, um, there might be new developments by the time it is kind of put to air, but we'll do, um, we'll do our best to sort of um, discuss it as probably as we, we can. You're listening to Green Left Radio. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Because music. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sons Frontier. Great voices. Music Matters. The Hipster Star Hop Show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and we were just having a bit of a discussion um, about the different um, 
things that are happening in the refugee rights movement, from the protests at the Park Hotel to um, the burning of um, the Christmas Island Detention Centre. Now, there's been quite a, a big major news story um, in terms of what's happening in the United States. So currently, right now, um, as far as I know, the United States is going through a Senate runoff in Georgia, and of course, that's where most of sort of the news has going to be um, has been. Uh, has been focused on, but um, what has actually just happened now is thousands of armed right-wing fascists have essentially stormed the US um, capital, um, which is, you know, essentially equivalent to the Parliament House in um, Australia and have basically made the demand um, that... Trump being made um, the president or or basically putting forward the argument that Trump kind of put forward that uh, the um, the election was rigged um, for for Joe Biden to win um, and essentially all chaos has pretty much um, as you can imagine the, the the imagery of right-wing fascists and with our guns <laughs> um, storming um, a US government building is actually a pretty, I think, terrifying kind of sight. And it goes hand in hand with the growth of the far right. And of course, this is the, the consequence of the far right growing. They're going to continue to organise um, organize and adopt even more dramatic kind of measures, including using outright violence. Yeah, I think it's pretty disturbing, the template that's being set by Trump, because it really paves the way for future more serious coup attempts in the belly of the beast, uh, which is pretty frightening, because if you have a coup and these kind of psycho fascists take over, they've got nukes, and it's just like, <laughs> it's really disturbing. Um Obviously, there's not the support in the U.S. ruling class or the Democrat or the Republican Party at the moment for an actual coup attempt. Trump is pretty politically isolated, but the template that's been set is to, you know, um, promote the election as being a fraud before it even happens. Then, when the election does happen, contradict the results and say that it was all a big scam. And then, um, having mobilised neo-Nazi sort of elements like this, armed thugs, uh, get them to storm the US Capitol building. Uh, what's also stark for me is, and, and there's a comrade from Socialist Alternative has commented to this effect this morning as well. Imagine if this was a Black Lives Matter protest and armed Black Lives Matter protesters and people of colour surrounded the US Capitol building and then attempted to invade it there would be bodies everywhere. The police would not hesitate to shoot large numbers of people. The the double standards are just astounding, where in Australia, Aboriginal people are routinely um, killed by police, and in the US, people of colour routinely killed by the police for literally no reason, just for, you know, driving while black, just for being in a car or being in your own house. You can be killed by the cops, uh, let alone if people are doing something that's seen as like provocative, for example, uh, running down the street while wearing a hoodie or something. 
contrast that with, with this, people with guns literally invading the main US parliament building and they're just allowed to do it. It's just astounding, the, the double standards. Uh, yeah, I think it's like, it's it's complete. It's, um, it is, as you say, um, Zane, to be terrifying. And I think what is really, I think, important is it's going to be important that um, the left mobilise against the um, far right. In fact, it, it should be, it would be really good if... Um, if whatever, um, in terms of the left that exists um, in, in the United States, if, if they were prepared to start organising protests, um, etc., um, counter-protests, mobilising um, large sections of the population to, um, to stand up against the far right, because really, I, despite this, I, I definitely think that you know, America is still a country that is not necessarily gone fully to the right. It is an incredibly polarised country, and I don't think that these fascists necessarily have mass support, but, of course, they've been continuously legitimised by the establishment, especially the media. Um, like, it's quite... I, I haven't really read what um, Fox News is saying about this at the moment, but I would kind of imagine that... Fox News is probably giving some sympathetic take um, take to the protesters, saying that they have genuine grievances or whatever, and um, also give, giving uh, giving um, um, a, a say to the fact, um, giving a voice to the um, to this argument that the election was rigged, which it clearly was not. <laughs> yeah, Trump has praised them as very special, apparently, in one of his um, interviews. <laughs> So he's he's very much encouraging them. But but yeah, I think this is um as I I don't think there's sort of much more um kind of to say other than this. But I will definitely keep following the news for more developments. Unless saying you have one last thing you wanted to mention. Well, the only other thing to say is that uh, the U.S. Senate uh, runoff election—it's kind of like a by-election—happened in the state of Georgia. Two Senate seats were up for grabs. Looks like both of them have gone to the Democrats and that therefore Democrats will take control of the Senate uh, in the US. Uh, that's uh, interesting because it would mean probably a lot of bloodletting in the Republican camp because over the past four years, they were in control of the presidency, the Congress and the uh, Senate. And they've lost all three of those following Trump's uh, destructive and polarizing uh, time in the helm. So the uh, the kind of internecine conflict in the Republican Party will probably increase. But the other thing to say is, will the Democrats actually do anything significant now that they've got control of all three houses? And the answer is probably not. They're probably going to be really disappointing and there's going to be more of the uh, same sort of neoliberalism. So, uh, yeah, I guess... It's, it's always um, reminds me of, like, in the US, there's always these sort of arguments that we um, we have to mobilise um, to and vote for um, for the Democrats. Um, it's almost like a... Um, like almost like a carrot on the stick kind of thing. There's all these people... A lot of people make this argument that, oh, yes, we just wrote for the Democrats they'll get this sort of, because there's always this argument um, when progressive legislation doesn't get passed by the Democrats that the reason why the Democrats can't pass this legislation 
is because they don't have control of the houses and the, of the Senate, um, and of course, or the Congress or the Senate in, in this, in this, in some of these cases. And of course, when they do have the majority and the Congress, they don't do anything anyway. So, um, not that I don't think it's, I, I would argue it's still preferable to have Democrats in instead of Republicans, especially in the case of this growing far right base of the Republicans. But I think a bit of reality, this is going to be a bit of reality check, um, when we find that the Democrats, um, with this new, with this new power they have will basically just be doing pretty much nothing. And in fact, Biden has already, um, went back against one of his promises of cancelling student debt. Although I'm not even sure if he really made a promise, but the last sort of comment I read or, um, I read about the idea of him cancelling student debt, he made sort of a comment along the lines of basically, I don't think I can do that as a president. And even if I could do that, I probably wouldn't do that, which is just sort of, I think, says everything about Biden. Although I have heard that they might be, um, there might be some measures that will be implemented that make it easier for people with low incomes in the United States to be able to go to, um, to go to college or university. But that's all really I've heard. It doesn't seem to be that, um, one of the biggest sort of demands, um, that the left has been demanding of cancelling student debt is clearly not going to be delivered under the Biden administration unless there's mass mobilizations and pressure to put um put on um, on the Democrats and the Republicans equally. All right. Well you're listening to um Green Left Radio and um we'll just go play a quick announcement and we'll go on to the next part of the program. Brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And for the next part of the program, um, I'm going to be playing a recording of an interview that I did last year, well, in December and during the holidays. And it's basically an interview with um, a Brazilian um, a journalist who is based in Brazil um, called Michael Fox. And so we have a bit of a long kind of political discussion about the politics of Brazil and so on. So, yeah, hope you um, enjoy the program. Hello everyone, you are listening to Green Left and my name is Jacob and I'm going to be your presenter for this program today. 
And for our program, we're very happy um, we're going to be having a discussion with Michael Fox, who is a longtime multimedia journalist and radio reporter based in Brazil. And I guess talking a bit about some of his work, we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with him about Brazilian politics, you know, what is the kind of state uh, and the situation there, and of course, what we could potentially learn from it. And Michael has some intensive experience covering the rise and fall, uh, well, not the fall, unfortunately, um, the rise of the and the government of Jar Bolsonaro very closely. And of course, he's also had experience being the former editor of the NACLA report on the Americas, the former director of video production at Telesur um, English, and a former member of the steering committee of the daily radio news show F. S-R-N. And of course, Michael Fox, as a journalist, has also and has reported for publications such as the NPR, PRI's The World, DW, The Nation, Business Insider, The Intercept, and AJ Plus, and numerous other news outlets. And he's also had some experience producing, he produced the Venezuela Analysis um, podcast for many years. So, so yeah, um, it's great to have you, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. And I guess maybe to start off this discussion for our listeners is maybe we can sort of have a bit, start off by having a bit of a discussion about, you know, as of kind of today um, and as it's kind of being recorded, what is really the kind of current sort of political situation in Brazil, especially for those who are, who are a bit disconnected to it and um, not necessarily following it that closely, especially since, yeah, maybe I'll pass on to you, Michael, to start this off. Well, you know, the, uh, we're two years into the government of, of President Jair Bolsonaro, far right President Jair Bolsonaro. Um, we've obviously the, the big news that is hitting the country hard is coronavirus. Uh, we're into the second wave and, um, and things are, are tip, ticking off, uh, just as bad as they were back in May. And of course, it's been just a, a complete disaster. Um, the, the Bolsonaro's government has not had a clear plan from the very beginning, even the vaccine plan that they were supposed to turn in uh, in the beginning of December to the, the Supreme Court didn't have a timeline for when it would actually start and end. Um, Bolsonaro himself says he's not going to take the vaccine. The Supreme Court just said that it's mandated. Uh, and so what we've seen since the very beginning of this this coronavirus uh, debacle, this 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 pandemic is that. Bolsonaro has been fighting it every step of the way. And so that is kind of overshadowing much of politics in, in Brazil today. Um, and we just had local elections, um, which, which we can get into a little bit. But, you know, the, the, the biggest point, the most important point is just the fact that Bolsonaro has taken a country that just a few years ago, you know, under former President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva and Dilma Rousseff from the Workers' Party, uh, that had really risen on the global stage. Millions had been lifted out of poverty. Uh, and of course, following in the, the congressional coup against Rousseff in 2016, the government of Michel Temer, and then Bolsonaro has really just ran it into the ground, been pushing privatizations, uh, neoliberal push, the gutting of social, social programs, and particularly the indigenous and environmental agencies you know, helping to empower illegal land grabbers and landowners to 
to, to move on, set fires and deforest and move on to indigenous territories. So it's just, um, in, it's, it's, it's an overall extremely concerning moment. The one kind of light at the end of the tunnel is that Bolsonaro's approval ratings is slipping now and, but slipping in particular due to the fact that his government has now, uh, it's cutting the monthly stipend for coronavirus that it had been giving to low wage and informal workers since the very beginning of the pandemic. This began back in March or April. Um, and they started to give, uh, low wage workers, informal sector workers, roughly a little over a hundred dollars a month, uh, to get by because the situation was so complicated. Um, and this lasted up until September when they cut it in half. And now they announced that they're going to be, you know, cutting it at the end of the year. And so it really seems like according to all the latest, um, statistics and analysts that a Bolsonaro's approval is going to drop a ticket, a, a pretty massive hit here in the beginning of January, but it also is going to mean that we're going to see a, a substantial rise in, in the number of Brazil's poor as people are really left, um, at this moment of the worst moment of Brazil's pandemic ever. And people don't have the support that they need to be supported by. Yeah, so you've kind of raised a lot of kind of interesting kind of points in relation to what's happening in Brazil. Um, and I guess I want to sort of maybe we'll focus, I guess, a few kind of questions on some of the kind of key aspects. And I guess the first sort of aspect I wanted to sort of have a discussion with you about is you mentioned Bolsonaro's kind of um, lowered kind of approval ratings um, and you kind of attributed sort of one kind of cause there. But I kind of want to hear a bit of a story from you, I guess, on how what what was the kind of basis by which Bolsonaro kind of got elected the first time and then maybe bringing it to his current kind of approval ratings and his sort of handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and how that sort of all kind of intersects because it might have, you know, in some ways a similar kind of story um, to, say, Donald Trump in the United States who was first elected in 2016 and then lost the election, obviously, this year. Absolutely. And the story, this is exactly what I was going to say. The story is, uh, it's, it's a, it's almost an exact parallel. When the people talk about, you know, the Trump of the tropics, that's what they call Bolsonaro. This is, this is, this is really what we see. And so if you can envision Trump, if you know any of the, the Trump reality where he, you know, he survives off of fake news, uh, his social media platform, his social media campaign, um, he's got roughly a third you know, maybe a third of the country who support him, you know, somewhere between 30 to 40% always had that, um, you know, obviously has an important base in, in, in white supremacists and he's been empowering white supremacists since the beginning. This is Bolsonaro. All of those points are, are the exact same. The difference with Bolsonaro is he's a former military captain under the dictatorship, uh, and a longtime congressman. So although he, you know, he was seen as an outsider because beforehand, he was just, you know, he was just reelected to Congress, obviously, but it was seen as, as, as almost humorous because his ideas were just so extreme. He actually, in the early days, he actually called for the disbanding of Congress and the return of the dictatorship. Uh, you know, he, it, racist, sexist, misogynistic, um, rhetoric continually. And I think he's been fined for that, that rhetoric, uh, in Congress and elsewhere. Um, he came to power largely. And again, you know, in the same way that, 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 that Trump was elected in kind of this backlash against Obama, right? Uh, Bolsonaro was elected. We have to understand the context. This happened 
in the the days or the years following the coup against Dilma Rousseff, first off, many, if you look at how fascist governments come into power, it's usually a situation where there's kind of a political crisis. Um, and then the left is blamed. It could be the communists, it could be the socialists, but the left is blamed for that political crisis. And then kind of the the, the far right fascist movement is able to take advantage of that moment uh, blaming corruption, even though they're oftentimes more corrupt. Um, and then they use that pushing, you know, the fake news kind of destroying, to, trying to, to destroy the system itself. Uh, and, and they come in kind of imploding and saying they're going to unite everybody against their project. And this was almost a carbon copy of what we've seen in other situations of kind of uh, fascist rhetoric or fascist regimes where they come into power. So that's what we had. Um, you had, just like you had in, in Italy, where Berlusconi was elected in Italy, you had the same situation here. You had uh, an anti-corruption um, task force, an anti-corruption long-going investigation. Um, the, the Workers' Party was specifically blamed. And in fact, in the 2016 elections, the Workers' Party lost very, very big because through the media and through the courts, um, the Workers' Party was seen as really the, being the root of this corruption in, in all of Brazilian corruption, which was just not the case. In fact, if you look at statistics, that is actually false, but that's how it was framed, obviously. Um, Dilma Rousseff was, was taken out in a congressional coup, which was a coup because it was very clearly they used um, everyday budget maneuvers um, and they said that that was illegal and that's what they used to take it out. And then the day after she was actually impeached, <laughs> then the Senate legalized the very same maneuvers that she had specifically been impeached under. Um, and that did had actually nothing to do with the corruption. Um, and so she was taken out with with the idea and the goal of implementing and 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 putting into a, in, in into effect uh, you know a, a neoliberal system. And that's what we've seen immediately after her election. Then Michelle Temer, her vice president, came to power. Um, the, the Congress and the Senate they froze public spending uh, and they put a public spending cap actually. On, on, on the budget for the next 20 years. Um, and you know they did a labor reform and that's where Bolsonaro comes to power. Now, in the lead up to the 2018 elections, uh, former president Lula seemed like a shoe in. In Brazil, even if you've, you've been in power once and been reelected, you can then come back to power uh, and it looked like Lula was gonna win. Of course, Lula was convicted on trumped up charges by a biased judge. And we know that he was biased according to the intercept revelations of these telegram messages of, um, that were passed between members of the, the, the anti-corruption task force in which it showed that actually the judge who was supposed to be impartial was actually guiding the prosecution, the investigations. There was no actual evidence against Lula. And in fact, what you had was all based off of plea bar and pardon testimony which, which Sergio Moro, the judge, had, uh, you know, helped encourage to change enough times that Lula would actually be convicted. So uh, it was, you know, a very much a, a biased conviction. He was jailed in April 2018, and his jailing meant that he was blocked from being able to return to power. And so amid all of this kind of insane system, then you had Bolsonaro who came in saying he was going to, you know, end corruption, end the left, uh, and attack activism. Um, and, and, and kind of turn everything on its head. And in fact, he, he put in a massive wave of the far right, which, which, 
which, which was elected into not just Bolsonaro, but many people wrote in on kind of his coattails across Congress and Senate and whatnot. Um, and, and this is where he stood. Now, he also brought in with him, um, stacked his, his government with uh, evangelicals, with conspiracy theorists, with the largest amount of military officials that we had seen in any government since the end of the dictatorship in 1985. Um, and so this is really kind of how he came to power uh, and also pushing this kind of fake news social media campaign. Um, and then, you know, what he's been doing in, in the year since has been kind of really gutting the, the, the democratic systems as much as possible. Although Brazil's democratic systems have been holding on and particularly the Supreme Court. And we've seen a lot of conflict between Bolsonaro and the Supreme Court, which has really been pushing back on him. Uh, and of course, his, his supporters do not like that. Um, and so this is, this is, this is the context with it, within which we find Bolsonaro at, at this moment. Yeah. So you've given quite a good kind of summary of, I think, the context, I think, for Bolsonaro and, of course, what his, you know, electoral kind of promises on and what he kind of planned to do um, as president of Brazil. And I guess now going into a kind of specific, what has, I guess, been the legacy of that in terms of this whole year in Brazilian politics? Because I guess... Um, this whole year has been a bit of a um, tsunami, um, especially for the whole world, especially as COVID-19 has kind of hit the entire world. And of course, Brazil is one of the worst sort of countries globally in terms of cases next to the United States, um, with at least 25,000 cases a day, although I heard it could be even higher than that. And in fact, it has been as high as 60,000 cases a day. But of course, the deaths have been over 187 um, 187,000. Um, so what what has overall been the kind of handling of Bolsonaro, especially since you set up such a great sort of context for his administration? Because I guess this would be the sort of first test on what he can, what he's actually going to do, what he actually did and how he's probably made the situation worse. Well that's, well, that's exactly been it. It hasn't been handling, it's been mishandling and mishandling since the very beginning. Um, you know, he, he never came out with a plan. In fact, from the very beginning, he was saying this was not a big deal. Everyone just had to get back to work. What's more concerning was the economy. In fact, when, when Brazil passed the number of deaths, uh, from the people that died in China from coronavirus, uh, a journalist at the time, this was just two months into the pandemic, asked him and they said, well, what does this mean? These deaths? And he said, so what? What do you want me to do about it? Um, so this, these callish remarks, obviously, um, have been extremely concerning. He's battled with local governors over in, in the early days. It was over social restrictions and, and quarantine measures, which many governors, many, you know, the, the local states actually wanted to um, implement a much more uh, robust social restriction measures. Uh, and now he's battling over vaccines. Right. He's uh, there. There's uh, Sao Paulo has just been receiving uh, vaccines that they're expected to start to to roll out in the coming weeks. And a few months ago, he had said, no, 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 we're not doing that. We won't, it just won't be approved because I won't approve a Chinese vaccine because Sao Paulo made the agreement with, with China. Now it looks like the states are going to be allowed to have their own specific agreements to acquire vaccine for their own specific states because they don't necessarily trust the national government plan. He cycled through three different, um, uh, three different health ministers because they wouldn't um, tag his line of basically 
pushing hydroxychloroquine uh, and chloroquine, which is, of course was the unproven anti-malarial drug that he himself took when he came down with, with coronavirus several months ago. Uh, and he's been touting this from, from, from day one. Of course, remember, Trump also took hydroxychloroquine when he got sick. Uh, and it was just a couple of days ago that, you know, Bolsonaro said he's not going to get the vaccine. In fact, people might, he, he was talking about how you, you don't know what could happen. You might turn into a crocodile. You don't know, uh, you know, what might happen to you if you take the vaccines. But hydroxychloroquine is still the way to go. So that's what he keeps pushing, which is just ridiculous. Um, but it has been a, really a, a, a mishandling since the very beginning. Now, the, what, Bols, what Brazil has going for it and what's extremely important is the fact that Brazil has an extremely robust universal healthcare system uh, that is found across the country. Now, of course, it is not necessarily equal. Uh, there are certain areas, if you go to the, the favelas outside of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo or up in the north and northeast, which are poor states in general, it doesn't have the same uh, robust health system that you have, say, in the South and other areas. But regardless, this is this has kept Brazil afloat, despite the numbers, you know, 180,000 dead, despite the rising case count uh, each week. Um, what has kept the country afloat has been this universal health care system. I cannot imagine a country that had only a, a you know, a, a private health care system. Uh, we would see the, the death count so much higher. Uh, also, Brazil has in a long experience fighting and battling viruses and diseases. Remember, Brazil is kind of ground zero for malaria, uh, chikungunya, um, uh, dengue, and of course, Zika, Zika virus that, that, that really hit, you know, hit Brazil hard and Latin America hard about five years ago. Uh, and so the, the health systems here and the health research institutes are extremely robust and very, very, um, and very, very, they, they have just a lot of experience. And so this has kept Brazil alive because on the ground, these people have been doing their work despite um, Bolsonaro's uh, lack of guidance. Of course, the health minister that he ended up going with and the person who's been guiding the health ministry for months is a man by the name of Eduardo Pazuello, who has no health experience. He had no health experience when he took that job. He's a he's an army general. Uh, and that's essentially what Bolsonaro wanted. He wanted a yes man who would be in there and would do Bolsonaro's bidding. Um, and he, even he is pushed back on Bolsonaro sometimes. So it has been uh, extremely concerning since day one. And remember, like Australia, Brazil is headed into summer right now. Um, and that means it's headed into summer vacations. The beaches are packed. I live in Florianópolis, which is one of the main areas where, you know, I, I think our ICU units are, I think we're at almost capacity for the hospitals here, you know, roughly around 100% if it's not, you know, 94, 95 percent and many cities are in that very similar situation but the states and the governors do not want to roll back on lockdowns in fact it was there was a lockdown that was attempted in a city in Rio de Janeiro and Bolsonaro supporters came out and actually protested it um, and so they're expecting that the same thing would happen and they, they just after having social restrictions and then reopen the economy um, it, it's just not going to happen to, to, to go back on lockdown and that's concerning because the the local, health research institutes say that what we're going to be seeing right now, it's, it's bad now, coronavirus, but in a few weeks after we've gone through summertime and people are out uh, and not socially isolating, and even though there's a mask mandate, many people are not wearing their masks, that here at the beginning of January, things are going to really, really turn for the worst. And I guess the next kind of thing 
kind of talk about is most um, quite recently um, you mentioned this there were um, there were some elections that happened recently in Brazil um, municipal elections between um, the 15th of November the 29th and I guess how has the what has been the what was what were the kind of results of that election because elections can sometimes tell us a bit about where the kind of consciousness of people are at especially in response to a clearly sort of right-wing government that has mishandled um a global kind of pandemic so i kind of want to hear what is sort of your analysis on on those those results yeah well the big takeaway is that bolsonaro lost big he, um, I think only one or two of the people that he supported actually won. And the elections were for local city council members and for mayor. So these were local elections. Uh, but that was the big takeaway because it really showed Bolsonaro's own kind of support and power to, to generate interest and to, to, to generate support um, is, is on the wane. Uh, now, part of this is also because of, due to the fact that he left the party that he was elected into the, the PSL, the Social Liberal Party. Um, and he said he, last year, he said he was going to form his new party, but he couldn't get enough signatures to form it in time to run in the elections. And so that was, that's partially obviously to blame because he didn't have a party machine behind him. But regardless, the, there was even one case where he supported a woman for mayor up in northeastern Brazil, and her party came out and said that they, they kind of uh, they rejected his support because they said, well, look at all the other people that he's supporting. They're all losing. We don't want, we don't want your support. So that's one big takeaway. Now, at the same time, the, the, the right wing traditional parties, they picked up many seats. And so that is important to look at that while Bolsonaro and kind of his far right conspiracy theorist um, kind of agenda did not win, what won was the more still right, but more traditional right in Brazil. Um, and so that is important. They picked up many local seats. Now, what is also important, however, and this has been something that was not uh, reported um, adequately, was that the left held ground. They did not do bad. In fact, in many cases, they really took background that they lost back in the, in, the, in, the, in the local elections of 2016, which was in the middle of kind of this attack against the, the left, obviously. Um, in fact, there was one pundit during these elections who said that this was the worst loss for the workers party in 40 years which is just a lie um what you saw back in 2016 just some examples the workers party went from the sixth to the tenth largest party in terms of the number of mayors of cities over 200,000. uh well this last time it rose back to seventh um it, it won four major four big cities the peso, which was kind of a, a breakaway from the workers' party back in the early 2000s, it won Belém, which is the capital of the Pará, the state of Pará, which is one of the largest states in the Amazon there. Um, and um, and there's a fascinating graph which shows 26 state capitals, and, and the workers' party actually rose from the fifth to the second largest political party in terms of the number of elected city council members. So these kind of statistics show us that at the same time as Bolsonaro is losing, the left is holding itself. Uh, despite what the, the mainstream media is saying, uh, and the and the right in general, the traditional right has kind of picked up some speed. Um, but this question about Bolsonaro losing ground is important because you know, looking at 2022, because that's you know that's when he's going to be up for re-election. Uh, and of course, um, there's this question: Donald Trump just lost. Uh, many people in Brazil were looking toward the United States to understand what 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 me what we might expect um, in 2022 for Brazil because of just 
the, 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 the parallels and the similarities between Bolsonaro uh, and Trump. Now, of course, Bolsonaro has still uh, retained his, you know, third of, of the population, somewhere between 35 and 40 percent that are adamant supporters, just like in the case of just like in the case of Trump. Um, but it does look like it, he's going to have uh, his work cut out for him in, in the next couple of years here heading into the, the, the 2022 presidential elections. That's yeah. So that's sort of interesting, and I guess I want to sort of ask a question a bit about um, a few kind of think um, a few kind of questions are kind of raised by some of your points. I mean, what was the kind of reason for the rise in the traditional right? What do you think is sort of the reason for the rise in the voting base of the traditional right? Do you think that has something to do with the fact that just like Donald Trump, um, he's losing a certain amount of um, confidence from sections of the capitalist class, because I guess from my understanding of the when Bolsonaro got um, first got elected, he did have a significant um, level of support from capital. Uh, is he sort of losing ground from that? And I guess the second is there is there um, a lot of these a lot of these sort of right wing sort of authoritarian sort of fascistic kind of leaders like for example Modi in India um, and Donald Trump in the United States and also Duterte in the Philippines. One of the things that they all have in common is they do have a very sort of um, supportive kind of support base, like a very sort of active kind of support base. Something in a certain way that we wouldn't like coming from Australia, we just don't have that that supporter base, loyal supporter base doesn't exist for even the most right-wing kind of conservative kind of parties. It's all, it's a bit of a sort of split sort of base. And I guess what can you tell us is that, is there such, is that sort of thing exist in Brazil in the context of Bolsonaro's popularity and how is it, how will it impact on Brazilian politics, especially if um, um, Brazil sees a similar situation to the US and Bolsonaro loses next election? Yeah, so he absolutely has a loyal supporter base, uh, and they are the people are very active over social media, uh, and you know, and they are more. So never very big, but they're they're willing to to protest ne when necessary. In fact, they're they're planning a protest just in the coming days um, against the Supreme Court ruling that would make the vaccines mandatory here in Brazil. They, of course, they, they saw that as an attack against their freedom uh, and they exploded on social media the day after this happened, uh, making a hashtag go viral calling for the Ukrainization of Brazil. So the kind of the division of Brazil, the imploding of Brazil. It needs to be understood, part of this actually walks back to the legacy of the dictatorship um, in Brazil. So Brazil, as compared to many other countries in Latin America, there was never a reckoning for the, the human rights violations, for the disappearances, for the torture. Um, it, it just kind of moved on and they were never able to hold people accountable. Uh, and, and I was doing some reporting on this just earlier this year and speaking with um, a professor who kind of focuses on this, on, on the dictatorship past and on, on the history. And she said absolutely that this um, leaves an, an, an important, in order to understand Brazil at this moment, you have to understand the impact that still has. Because many elderly folks still talk, uh, they, they, they talk, you know, they, they look back on the dictatorship era as a time of stability and a time of safety. 
Um, Brazil is a very, very, very big country. So it wasn't like a country like in, in Uruguay where, you know, like it was, I, I think something like one third of the families knew, had someone uh, who was tortured. Uh, you know, there was like these deep connections with, with the impact of the government, whereas Brazil, things are so diverse uh, and disperse around the country, though the impact of kind of the, the, the human rights violations and the disappearances and the attacks and the, and the killings and, and, the, um, and the torture was not necessarily so felt uh, everywhere around the country. And um, you have a substantial portion of the country, somewhere around 10, maybe 10 to 15 percent, that actually were calling for military intervention in, in, in recent years. Uh, and so these people want the military to intervene. They would be extremely happy with kind of the, the overthrow of a democratic government. Uh, and in fact, we saw these constant protests happening against social restrictions in favor of Bolsonaro. People were out every single weekend in Brasilia back in April and May, you know, calling for the, the disbanding of Congress and calling for the end of the Supreme Court, which just seems just insane uh, in, in, in a democratic country. But this is the legacy that Brazil carries with it. And that's part of the reason why they, you know, why Bolsonaro won, because he represented the military vote for the first time. In, in many ways, it was, it was symbolically a return to the military regime, right, of, 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 the, of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and so absolutely, he has these, these loyal supporters. There is also a very loyal liberal base. Uh, and when I say liberal, I mean libertarian now, some of them have kind of broke from Bolsonaro, but they were key in his rise to power uh, and still kind of form, you know, uh, kind of key allies in his government. And then there's also, of course, the evangelical vote, which is key. And in order to understand the evangelical vote, again, this is another one of those parallels with, with the United States, whereas the United States, I think it's roughly a third of the country that's now evangelical. In Brazil, it's roughly 25%. Um, and... Uh, you know, Bolsonaro was married by one of the most rabid uh, evangelical pastors in, in Rio de Janeiro uh, a few years ago. And, um, and these people are very, very active. And in fact, I was interviewing some of them a couple of years ago. Uh, and they're very clear that they have a clear goal and they want to have a say about every aspect of Brazilian politics, every aspect around the country. And that's, that's the direction they're headed. And this came about, I mean, we have to look back into the 1980s when roughly, you know, if you go back to kind of um, the, uh, what do you call it? The, when, when the Catholic church and the Catholic organizing in many of Brazil's poorest communities started to pull out um, kind of at, at the waning air end of kind of the liberation theology and things like that, then who filled that void were, were the evangelicals and the evangelicals churches. And so they've been organizing those regions for a very long time. Uh, and they saw in Bolsonaro their guy. Um, and they were very, very active. In fact, um, there were situations where there was a, a massive women's protest organizing in, in kind of the lead up to his election that was very similar to what we saw in the women's organizing just after Trump's victory, right, in 2016. Um, and so you had this massive women's organizing happening here in Brazil, and the evangelical preachers kind of were able to flip it on its head, neutralize it using fake news um, and, and tying it to, you know, to, to sinful acts and whatnot. Uh, and, and, and Bolson actually, he actually won 
uh, yeah, we actually, t- t- he was, he was able to take advantage of that and help him even kickstart his campaign even more. So these types of things are extremely hard to kind of pin down. And of course, there's the white supremacist movement, which is very similar to, to Trump. Uh, there is a, a, there's a growing neo-Nazi movement here. Brazil had the largest Nazi party outside of Germany back in the 1930s. Uh, and that has, is partially due to the very, high number of German immigrants into Brazil at the time and kind of the turn of the century. Um, and so all of these details are important to understand kind of the composition of, of, of Bolsonaro's base, but also understand that, you know, th- these folks are loyal and they're going to stick with him, you know, through and through, even as many other people are saying, listen, this guy is just too much. Uh, he's not guiding the country in the right direction. I still want somebody on the right. Uh, and then they, they turn more to the traditional or the centron. The centron is kind of the, 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 the traditional center, center right parties, um, that kind of makes up the bulk of Congress. You know, Congress, Brazilian Congress is, is the most conservative it's, it's ever been. And it's been increasingly more and more conservative. Um, and so of course for Bolsonaro, that's good because he's able to kind of push through things. But as of recently, even though he came into office saying, oh, I'm not going to make deals and I'm not going to embrace those from even the more traditional right parties, he's been doing that more and more and incorporating more and more of the, of the center right parties into his cabinet and his, into his government to realize that he's got to make these deals in order to kind of push through the things that he wants happening in, in the capital of Brasilia. And that, I guess, brings us to, I guess, another kind of important sort of discussion, which is what has been, I guess, the record of Bolsonaro in terms of environmental destruction in Brazil? Because Brazil is a very important place, uh, especially uh, for being the place of the Amazon rainforest. And I guess what has, I guess, been the response of Indigenous communities and grassroots kind of resistance to this kind of environmental destruction by the Bolsonaro administration? Well, this is probably the key area that after coronavirus, this is the key area that we hear, we you always hear talking about is <clears throat> Bolsonaro's destruction of the Amazon, um, his gutting of Indigenous environmental agencies. Uh, and that is all absolutely the truth, you know. Um, two years ago was when we really, we, you know, when the news of the Amazon fires really kicked off around the country and you saw protests, not just in Brazil, but around the world uh, against Bolsonaro and his handling of the Amazon fires. Well, what's, what people don't know is that this year, the Amazon fires were even worse than they were last year, uh, even though we didn't hear about it because of, obviously there's coronavirus, there's the fires, uh, there was the fires in Australia, there's the fires up over in, on the West Coast in the United States. And so it didn't get as much media coverage, but the fires this year and deforestation was the worst in, in, in a decade. Um, and much of that can be can, uh, attributed to Bolsonaro. His government, his moving in, he, he, he was very clear since the very beginning saying, listen, I, I'm gonna open up the Amazon for development. Um, we can't give more land to indigenous communities. We can't give more land to black traditional communities. We need to develop it and incorporate these the indigenous peoples into into society, which is uh, which was the analysis of the military dictatorship. So he's basically rolled back, despite the the 1988 constitution, which said that you know indigenous peoples um, and black traditional communities have the right to their land. He's basically rolling back to the days of the dictatorship 
which basically says, listen, these people can't be off in their own areas and we need to, um, th that's land that we should be, that, that should be used. In fact, he's been pushing just most recently, pushing to, to open up mining in, on indigenous territories. Uh, and it has been disastrous for indigenous communities. I've been doing a lot of reporting on this um, for NPRs, you know, PRIs, the world, um, and speaking with a lot of, of different indigenous communities around the country. Uh, and what they've been seeing is this influx of um, illegal land grabbers. This is basically people that move on to indigenous land. They take that land, they say uh, it was theirs, and they start to sell it off. And of course, they deforest it, they cut it down. Of course, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, fires don't start themselves in the Amazon. Uh, they have to be lit. And in order to light them so that it will actually catch, you have to cut that land down first. So you have to kind of clear cut it. So what happens is we already knew as of May of this year that this was going to be the worst season for fires that Brazil had seen in a decade. And why was that? It's because the, the deforestation that we had seen in the Amazon region for the nine months prior had been the worst period of deforestation in a decade. So we knew that once, you know, the dry season came and, and the Amazon is very clear, there's a wet season and dry season. Once that dry season starts to roll out in May, June, particularly July and then August, and once they, you know, what people do is they, they, they cut down the land and then they let those trees and, and, and the, the former greenery sit there for a long time. And then they set it on fire and they blaze and they, and they, and, and, and they let it all go. Um, and so what Bolsonaro has done, he's basically empowered uh, large landowners, um, loggers, miners, illegal land grabbers to move on to conservation areas, indigenous lands. I was, uh, I was speaking with, um, the chief of the Caripuna tribe, which is in western in the western Amazon, who I've been in touch with for several years now, uh, and he sent me some pictures just a few months ago, uh, and the pictures were drone shots of their land. Now, just five or six years ago, their land was absolutely pristine. It was Amazon jungle, um, exactly what you would imagine being Amazon jungle. But even if you look at Google Maps, which I did, you can see that there are roads in. There's areas that are now pockmarked. Uh, and what this drone footage shows was that whole areas of their land had been clear cut. It wasn't them that were doing it, but people that were moving in, looking to take that land and sell it off. And of course, the land, much indigenous territory is very big. And oftentimes indigenous people like his, his, I think there might be only 60 or 70 members of his tribe left. And they live on one village in one corner of the land. And of course, they can't be protecting the land and um, you know, all, all around their entire territory. Um, and so they can't be there at all times. And what happened was previously, you know, the, 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 the environmental protection agency and the indigenous protection agencies, that's what they did is they helped protect these land. If they found people or if they heard word of people out there, they would move in, they would find them. They would, they would take their equipment. People could be jailed. Um, that is still happening, but the amount that it's been happening has decreased exponentially because of the fact that funding for their agencies had been cut and slashed by the Bolsonaro government. So it's meant that, and particularly with coronavirus, it's gotten even worse because people haven't been out there to really uh, be there to pay testament to what's happening, to be there to, um, to, to, to watch and to document when you know people are deforesting or, or are cutting down trees or trying to move on to indigenous territories, and because of coronavirus, that's made that more difficult. And so it's meant that it's been uh, it's been a bit of a free for all, even more so this year than before, with these uh, illegal groups. And 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 then of course we're not, we haven't even mentioned legal miners. You've got 
more than 20,000 illegal miners that are on Yanomami land along the border with Venezuela. Um, and that has been extremely um, uh, uh, concerning for the Yanomami people there because, of course, these miners have brought in coronavirus, right? So really this year in particular, indigenous peoples, they've been facing coronavirus, which has been attacking their communities. They've been facing the fires, um, right? That has been, and if it's not the fires on their land, it's the respiratory illnesses and whatnot from the smoke from these fires. They've been facing the, the, the direct attack on their land from illegal land grabbers and loggers and, and landowners. And then, then there's been the gutting of, uh, of the indigenous environmental agencies by the, by the, the, the Bolsonaro government. And then we also have Bolsonaro's own push to open up their lands, um, for a, a extractive, um, you know, policies like mining. So no, the situation is, is very, very, um, concerning. Indigenous communities are, of course, holding on. And there are many different organizations that are, you know, fighting this around the country. But of course, Bolsonaro's response is to blame the fires on the NGOs. I don't know if, if, if your listeners remember this last year, but, you know, when the fires were kicking off, he said, well, it's not my fault. I'm not doing it. It's the NGOs that are lighting fires because they don't like me. Um, or to blame the fires on, um, on, on, on the international community saying that the international community, it's, it's, it's not their, they don't have a right to, to tell me what to do. This is our country. So it's a discourse. It's a defensive discourse that, that Bolsonaro always turns to, to say that it's not his fault, but obviously it has been, it's been disastrous and it looks like it's going to continue to be. Yeah. So just for this discussion, you've covered lots of different interesting aspects of, um, and a sort of good kind of summary of, the kind of political situation of um, in Brazil, covering sort of um, Bolsonaro's sort of um, regime, his government, um, they're handling the COVID-19 pandemic, and of course, most importantly, uh, the level of environmental destruction that has been unleashed by the Bolsonaro administration. I guess the next kind of point I kind of want to get onto is, um, from my knowledge, you are in the process drawing on your sort of journalist kind of experience, working on a 12 kind of part kind of podcast um, about Brazilian politics. And I guess I want to use this kind of opportunity to hear from you about what is your kind of plans for this and tell us a kind of bit about it. Yeah, so this podcast is, for me, uh, it's uh, it's been something I've been working on for several years. Originally, it was going to be a book. Uh, and then I realized that I was kind of on the ground in all of these places when things were happening. You know, I was in front of Bolsonaro's house uh, the day with with his supporters, the day he was elected, I, I've been in the Amazon. I've been in tr with, with traditional Black communities that are fighting uh, their eviction from their territories because of um, deals between Brazil and the United States. Um, and so I realized that I had all this audio, I had all this experience, I had witnessed all this, um, and I needed to be able to tell the story in a way that that people could understand it because, you know, it's it's difficult to understand. Um, the intricacies of the support for Bolsonaro, what got him elected, who are his supporters, why are they still there, but also the impact his government has had on, you know, social movements, uh, on small farmers, on, on, on urban movements, on people all around the country. And so the, the podcast itself, like you said, it's an 11 to 12 part series. Uh, I'm developing it in the coming months. I've launched a, a, a Kickstarter fundraiser to try and raise funds for this so I can just focus on this because obviously as a journalist I end up oh yeah I'm going to focus on this I'm going to do this and I end up getting pulled aside to be able to 
you know, to, 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 to do stories, to, to make money so we can pay the rent. Uh, and so I want to focus the next few months just on this. And the theme of it, kind of my tagline is that this is the story of Bolsonaro's rise, his far right government that's setting the country ablaze and how America helped him do it. Because the connection between, you know, as, as I've mentioned already several times, the connection between Brazil and the United States is so, so, so deep. And, you know, it's important to understand how culture war uh, has played its own role uh, on, on, on Bolsonaro's rise. And much of that culture war has been imported to a large extent, um, imported from the United States, you know, abortion rights, the evangelical movement, whatnot. And so there are so many kind of similarities. Bolsonaro's own, this is something a lot of people don't know, Bolsonaro's own far-right guru is a man by the name of Olavo de Carvalho. He's a traditionalist, far-right um, self-made philosophy, philosopher. He lives uh, in rural Virginia, just outside of Richmond, which was the former capital of the Confederacy in the United States. He moved there, I think it was back in 2005. And then he founded uh, an online political school to teach his far-right philosophy to people across Brazil. And in fact, that many people attribute uh, his kind of philosophy and his organizing and his philosophical school, right, for kind of the rise of the right in a lot of ways, uh, and and it, which would then, of course, lead to Bolsonaro. So these intricacies of understanding these connections with the United States, how the Atlas Foundation in the U.S. has been funding liber libertarian groups in Brazil as well, and how those groups have been expanding and growing, uh, and, and of course, help, help, you know, lift Bolsonaro to power. So there's a lot of connections there that are really, really important. And, it, and the podcast is essentially, listen, um, listeners are going to, you know, they're going to join me on, 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 on as, as I take them around the country to the, all these different areas. We start kind of just in the, in the lead up to, to the elections as violence is spiking um, and, 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 and racist deaths are happening, political deaths uh, against um, former, you know, Lula supporters and, and, and Bolsonaro's opponents. Uh, and we roll from there, you know, in, into understanding the supporters, Bolsonaro supporters, and on through to, to all, all the different facets of how his government has un unleashed, how, how his government has really set the country ablaze. So I'm super excited. Um, it's one of the most important things I'm, I will have been doing uh, in recent years and to be able to synthesize all this information uh, and, and I'm, I'm hoping to be able to, um, to roll it out, you know, at the, toward the, say, October of 2021. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that, um, Michael. Um, I guess maybe we can kind of conclude, I guess, this discussion. Um, do you have, like, any final comments you would like to make? I, I would just say that, you know, <clears throat> Brazil, um, a lot of people don't know it's, it's, in the largest country uh, in the Americas. It's literally half the size and has half the population of South America. So you, if you combine all the rest of the the continent together, that would equal Brazil. And which is why it's so important economically um, and politically. And you know the connections and the ties, like I mentioned, with the United States, run deep. Um, but also, you know, looking at this moment is very interesting as we see kind of this, the, the return of the left in a lot of ways in, in the region, you know, with, um, 
the Luis Arce, you know, Evo Morales is back in Bolivia. Um, you know, the, the left won back Argentina. Chile is now um, going to be rolling out their new constitution. So you kind of have this, it's not the absolute return of the pink tide that we saw back in the 2000s, but it's definitely a rollback from the, the very scary moments that we saw, which was really epitomized by, by Bolsonaro's election back here a couple of years ago. Um, and that kind of gives hope uh, amid this, this moment. Of course, Trump lost in the United States. Um, but we also have to understand that the things that had been rolled out um, by Trump in the United States, by Bolsonaro here, are not things that are going to go go away overnight. Um, and we need to understand the the impact they can have in the future, how how communities are are resisting, um, and um, and also so that the same mistakes aren't made in the future, wherever that might be. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael. It's been fantastic having you on our program. Just to conclude it, you are listening to Green Left. And if you, um, for this, um, to have, to hear more kind of podcasts like this produced, um, for Green Left, along with all the kind of other news and, um, from the act, um, from the activist movements, um, that Green Left offers each week, um, consider becoming a supporter. Green Left is people powered media and as a grassroots publication, it thrives on the support of our supporters. And so if you, enjoyed what you um what you heard consider becoming a supporter of green left it's only five dollars a month for the digital edition of green left and ten dollars a month for and um for the print edition and you can become a supporter of green left at greenleft.org.au forward slash support you are listening to green left A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. listening to Green Left Radio and um, you're just listening to a recording of an interview that I did with Michael Fox who is a Brazilian, uh, a journalist based in Brazil about politics in Brazil Anyway, we are getting to the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and it's good to be back in the new year and hope to keep the struggle going um, for the rest of 2021 in our fight for a better world. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and this is going to be the end of the program. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. 
If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.